This is a podcast that contains spoilers, sensitive material, and acts of villainy. Listener discretion is advised. (laughs) I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Oh, right. For Christ's sake, why? Hey! Why? Why? Because we fucking can! I commit evil to destroy the greater evil. We make the terror. (laughs) Welcome to the World Domination Committee, a monthly podcast where we discuss villains from media and history, what makes a good villain, and what makes a bad villain better. I'm your host, Exala, and I've been working under the table at a pizza shop run by the mob. And I'm your other host, Trinzala, and you have five minutes. Nothing more, nothing less. Get in, get out. Anything happens to you, I don't care. Within that five minute window, that's when I'm able to save you. Anyway, Happy Happy New New Year! Year. Boys, girls, and others. Everyone in between and outside of. The holidays were crazy. As Uh, they always are. uh, Traveling, family, trying to make a podcast and do research for it. Uh, also, still working in the meantime too. Oh yeah, holidays are an interesting time. It's I think for like, everyone. I feel like holidays are kind of like limbo in the work sphere because everybody still has to clock in and do work, but everybody's already kind of mentally fucked off. Yeah, and then you're like, "Are we really doing work?" Or <laughs> is anything or... productive? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, not that your life has to be measured by output of productivity, but anyway. and then you also get other things like uh, sickness from. Yeah, to be fair, I we had an interesting holiday spent with family, and then shortly thereafter, I got bronchitis. So amidst prepping for this podcast and also trying to do other audio recording, I've been <coughs> dying. Oh no, you're dying. I, I I hurt myself really bad. I got a paper cut. Mm, yes. Speaking of paper cuts, uh, today's episode is going to be a little bit of what we are now dubbing a paper cut style episode. We're not going as deep into content as we did with good old Wally from last episode, uh, episode two, Wigging Out with Robert Walpole. Um, but we're still going to be covering something pretty interesting. Uh, we're diving into a character from a film today. Yeah, and it, I thought it was a really good film, and it, it's sometimes hard to analyze uh, because there's not a lot of words. So this is an audio format, but we're going to try to describe a little bit of visuals throughout the entire podcast yeah. in order to convey how the character feels, I suppose. Yeah. But before we get into that, we have to cover... A few other things about oh, our previous podcast. Such as? Uh, Did we get feedback? Yeah, we got feedback. Ooh, yeah, baby! So, we had feedback from someone named Nav. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. Uh, a villain? Perhaps? Only villainous people would give feedback on a villainous podcast. Looking at you, Nav, out there in the ether. We see you wearing your witch hat and being nefarious. 
And I see those five stars, too. <laughs> so, if you guys have been smoking too much of the reefer, and you don't remember what our first episode was, it was about Munjo Seo from Hell is Other People, the Korean drama. So, Nav mentioned in a very long and gracious email to us that we didn't mention any of Zhang Wu's background. Jong-woo, the main character of that series, uh, was part of the military, and that was a huge impact on the culture and the youth of that time, especially when Jong-woo returns to civilian life in a bad economy, working for pennies, and basically being a killing machine. Nav said it would essentially push anyone to become a monster or go insane, which I think is a valid point that we skipped over when covering Strangers from Hell, although Jong-woo was not the main villain. I would disagree a little bit on this. It would make anyone potentially, but I think that Seo, the villain that we covered in that series, put fuel on that fire. Yeah, I think that was the point. I think what Nav was trying to convey, at least from what I understood, was we didn't cover a lot of some inciting incidents for the protagonist. Now, Seo was the antagonist, and we don't know about military background, but we can assume that he put the flame on the fire of that military background on Zhongwu. So, we might have had a little bit of trying to summarize it too small without giving the cultural impact, and we apologize for that. There was also a missing element of, like, the army and capitalism, as I just mentioned, we didn't really dive into the military aspect and how that shapes a lot of people in Korea. But Nav was also saying how the threat of North Korean military, but also being young in a society where you're used to militarization and also having to work for money so often that a lot of times predators in their highest ranking are kind of like the highest elite of your society uh, in martial, financial, and social terms, usually captains, managers, doctors, even dentists like Sayo. The paragons of society act as the role models but tend to feed off of the aimless youth like Zhongwu. And I also think this brings it back to my earlier point is, is that we didn't mention a journal uh, that... Uh, Yep. Jung Woo actually uh, found inside of his tiny apartment. Yeah, it was from the previous tenant who was said to have committed suicide. But if you've watched Strangers from Hell, hopefully you have now, or Hell is Other People, my bad. We see that guy did not hang himself. And so that left a lot of good clues for Jung Woo. And there's also. A few other things that might be a little bit more of an interpretation, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which we're open to interpretation, baby. Let's go. So that brings us to the next point of feedback from Nav, which is that Sukyun, the rapper guy, is a retcon. Which, to be fair, I had no idea what a retcon was until I looked it up, which it actually means re- retroactive continuity. Which I didn't really understand until we had some screenshots in the email uh notably that after sukyeon interacts with jongu we see that he has multiple phone chargers where he asked to borrow one from jongu so it seems like he is set up to be some kind of nefarious figure that maybe knows a little about a little bit about eden residents or is in like cahoots with them the crime family or something so what i think what i think is that he is actually being manipulated by Seo. Yeah, 
which is what we're built up to think at the beginning. Yeah, it will. I also think that Seo is utilizing uh, this rapper to gain information about uh, Jean Gu. Yeah, that's something that our feedback from now pointed out is that it looks like Sukyeon is trying to eke out information from Jong-un. Notably, the first night they really hang out, they go drinking, and Sukyeon, the rapper, seems a lot more sober than Jong-un throughout the entire night. He refuses to drink more, or at least looks like he's not drinking as much, and this happens immediately after they run into Seo on the stairs, where it seems almost as if Seo is intimidating Sukyeon to kind of remind him of his mission, which I think is a very valid point. But what I could see is that Seo promises this young guy something nice, something familiar. Or like, safety, hey, go, even. Yeah, just, hey, go talk to this guy, I pay you a little bit, like, you know, it, it'll all be fine. As long as you bring me back some dirt, which it seems like he could, but as the story progresses, Sekyun becomes friends with um, with Jong Woo, and then eventually, like, not really betrays him, but is used as bait. Anyway, we covered that in the previous episode. And to be fair, rewrites happen all the time. And maybe the focus group just liked Sukyun a lot from the screening from Hell is Other People. I mean, I know I did. R.I.P. Rapper guy. Anyway, that brings us into another retcon that we should talk about. Oh, uh, no, I, I'm always correct. Mm-hmm. No, we, we had a retcon for episode two no, of I, Waking I, Out with Robert Walpole. I deny that I am never wrong. I, I am always the most honest, truthful person that knows everything. Well, one of the books that you kept, now pointed out, said that a Robinocracy was in the 1700s and the Thirty Years' War was in the 1600s, unlike the book that we kept for last episode. 1700, 1600, uh, they're just numbers. No, just kidding. No, I was actually really, really wrong. I studied the Thirty Years' War for a really good long time. It was pretty interesting within... It was not Germany at the time, but actually a coalition but a lot of that coalition had uh, a lot of aristocracy that was very involved. And eventually it became a big influence over Europe. Not only England, but also France, Spain, not Germany at the time, but many different local cities. So did you think the coalition was part of Walpole's reign to power? I, I, I think... A lot of it was political ties that came from old men thinking about the last war. So I was wrong on the dates. Uh, And I think, I apologize, it was not during the Thirty Years' War, but I think it had a really big impact in Europe at the time. So it's me apologizing with my facts wrong but also not apologizing at the same time so you got the dates wrong but you were initially thinking about the impacts of the 30 years war on robinocracy and walpole's reign of power yeah Yeah, that's that that's what i was mostly trying to say uh another note that now brought up is that we kind of 
over-dramatized Walpole. He never explicitly said, I can't stand for this atrocity, or a lot of things that we coined to his name. But we were just trying to be theater kids, so... Oh, yeah, dramatic as fuck. (laughs) And to be fair, we're going to keep being dramatic as fuck, bitches. But we love all of your emails. Yeah, especially if they aren't from bots or accidental mailing list subscriptions, so... Actually, send me all of your bot emails. I love your bot emails. (laughs) Type it into GPT. Give me your bot emails. Give it to me, daddy. Anyway, uh, give Trin your bot emails, but you can also send us your honest and heinous feedback at committee at worlddomination.ca, and we will shout you out, even if it's hate mail, we're going to name drop you on air, and we're going to say, oh yeah, so-and-so said this about us. (laughs) Look at them. So today's episode is a little bit of a hot take, considering we see this character as a villain but the director initially set out that the main character is the hero uh but before we get further into it how did we discover this villain i just i initially watched this film towards the end of 2022 based on trin's recommendation but you had watched it immediately after it came out in 2011 essentially yeah uh yeah i watched it maybe a year after in uh 2012 uh, maybe 2013, happened. kind of like on the precipice, kind of like how we are now in 2022 and 2023. Um, but uh, I discovered it because uh, at the time I was really investigating film and I really, really liked the director's work at the time. So I was trying to analyze how they would use shots within the film to paint characters within a certain way. Uh, how a perspective was shot could indicate emotions or characters or many different elements within that realm. Yeah, and we see that a lot in this film, how the way that the lighting and the close-up framework kind of gives the perspective of the main character. So I kind of discovered it through maybe youtube just searching on google just like being like stumbled upon it essentially yeah yeah i like i it was basically a branch that i tripped over it was a tab in your many many tabs in your browser yeah yeah i'm the guy that has 100 tabs you're the guy that has one tab to compress all your tabs yep that's true (laughs) anyway so that's how we discovered the movie we're going to be covering today, and if you haven't already put it together, we're covering Drive, the 2011 quiet neo-noir crime thriller directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, starring Ryan Gosling. And it's also based on a book, which I have not read because I was interested in film, not yeah, the book. We're only covering the movie today. But it was covered by, uh, what is it, James Salas? James Salas was the writer, so credit where credit is due. The tagline, or at least one of the few, was some heroes are real for the movie, but really the hero kind of becomes a villain, which is why we're covering him today. The alternate tagline, there are no clean getaways, I think is far more fitting because it goes into more of the gray area of what the driver does. And also there's this like weird, interesting fact that this entire time you're either watching this movie. I don't know about the book. 
I don't know about the book, but we're only covering the movie. So during the movie, the person we are covering today really has no name. Yep. So from this point on, we're just going to call him the driver. That's how he's credited, too. If you watch the end credits, he is just the driver. He's the only character without a name. So that kind of is a little bit of a hinting of some of the elements we're going to be discussing. He is a very isolated and stoic man and the fact that he's the only one without a name gives him kind of this anonymity even though he is the protagonist and for us the villain right now why do you think the director thought of him as a hero a little bit is it just because he's the protagonist from what i have read it seemed like the driver was trying to portray a hero Somebody, like a knight in shining armor, trying to rescue or protect the princess, which we'll get into, is the other main character. I think the director was trying to spin the driver as not necessarily a gray character as we see him, but somebody that does shady things for good intents. I perceive him as an anti-villain. Yeah, which we're going to dive into a little bit later, but that's the reason he doesn't seem like a conventional quote-unquote villain to cover for our podcast but there are some things that he does that really tags him as that archetype so i guess before we delve into his motives and his archetype and his villains arga do you want to cover a little bit of an overview of the film itself for people that don't know which spoiler alert we're gonna spoil everything oh yeah let's spoil everything and then let's go right into what an anti-villain is because it's one of the hardest things to write and direct and whatnot because it's so bizarre but let's 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 step back a little bit let's go to the overview yeah so if you haven't watched this movie yet you're gonna get spoiled if you have but you haven't seen it since 2011 we're gonna do a hot little recap for you because it's been when are we it's been 12 years am i doing math correctly i'm a gay i can't do are you trying to make me feel old (laughs) This movie is over a decade old, so if you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in a long time, no fault to you, we're going to give you an overview. So, to start, our main character, Driver, is a part-time garage mechanic at a shop run by uh, Walter White from Breaking Bad. No, his name is Shannon in the movie, but he's Well, his name is Walter Shannon, White. but yeah, yeah it is it is Walter White, the actor. Yeah, uh, and Shannon is- Or a, uh, Man in the Middle, or Malcolm in the Middle- Hal from Malcolm in the Middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shannon is essentially the mentor to the driver. He gives him gigs. He supplies him with vehicles and kind of has accepted him into the ropes of mechanic biz in Hollywood. At the same time, our driver is also a Hollywood stunt driver. But at night, he is a getaway driver for criminals. Essentially what I have coined, Uber for criminals. But also we have to recognize right now that Shannon is also pretty and big in debt. Yeah, we don't see it until a little bit later in the film, but Shannon's garage is, he he is in hot shit with the mob. Yeah, so a little bit of foreshadowing. Also, um, something that is supplied as Shannon being the mentor is that anytime the driver is doing Uber for criminal gigs, Shannon will give him a nondescript car to get the job done with. So Shannon, as the mentor, is giving the driver the getaway car, the means to execute any crimes done. And Shannon's also the one that is 
basically the mechanic always always providing for uh our protagonist the driver now when we see the driver doing his gigs the first like seg- sequence of the film is him executing a heist he is the driver as trin mentioned you have five minutes to get in and get out i don't carry a gun i have my car If you are not here, I'm leaving. If you are here, I will get you away. So when he is doing his Uber for Criminals gig, he is driving criminals to their destination and getting them away within a certain time limit. And he is crazy professional and calm. He's a very stoic guy, almost distanced to an extent. And he always is making sure that he doesn't carry a gun. He just drives. He's a part of criminal activity. However, he has very strict rules. Yeah, and in those rules, it almost seems like he's kind of trying to distance himself from an archetype in a way. The fact that he doesn't carry a gun, the fact that he is there as an end to a mean, I feel like the driver is building himself to be distanced from the criminal world, even though he is explicitly a part of it. Yeah, he is definitely trying. He's like, I'm not a criminal. I'm just an Uber driver. (laughs) That's basically what he's trying to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He, yeah, he's like, I'll help you get away. I, I don't know what kind of crime you're going to commit, but I have these parameters and you have to follow them. And if you follow them, I will I make sure you. that you are out of the location wherever that crime com- has been committed. Yeah. He also isn't a rat. Uh, we don't know much about the driver because we don't get much much exposition about his character, but we know, or we don't know, rather, about his family or his history, and he also depicts few emotions. One of the interesting facts about the movie was that he only has, what is it, 183, 111 or some odd lines? He speaks very little throughout the film, and we see him as kind of an existential hero. He, yeah, uh, most of the time he does his actions through actions instead of words. Actions or music. The soundtrack for this movie plays an important role as to what the driver is thinking. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's The soundtrack is basically his internal monologue. Based on some simple research, I heard that within the book, there is some more about his background. And how he gets into this line of work. As far as we know from the movie, though, he was hired by Shannon as a garage mechanic and kind of got into the gig of crime driving and Hollywood stunt driving. The movie doesn't show us anything explicit. That's kind of where he is right now. Yeah. And that's his mentor is Shannon, who is building the cars for him. Is in debt with the mob, kind of like giving him out cars to like go and do some side jobs, maybe yeah. do some Hollywood jobs. The driver is doing multiple hustles. He's a mechanic. He's a Hollywood stunt driver, Uber driver for criminals by night. He's he's on that grind set until Yo, yeah. he crosses the threshold. He lives in an apartment complex and falls for his neighbor, Irene, this soft and virginal-looking lady who has a little kid and a husband in jail. Is she really virginal, though? No, but according to the director, she was set up to be the image of purity. And, you know, she's very soft-spoken, very, like, sweet-like. He falls for her, 
and right. wants to be the provider. He wants to be a hero. Mm. And we're not here to talk about heroes. We're here to talk about villains. And speaking of, part of the villain's arc is temptations and motivations. And along that journey, after meeting Irene, his neighbor, the driver is encouraged by his own boss, Shannon, to set up a racing team with a mobster, Bernie, using gang money. Essentially, Bernie wants to start funneling mob money through a race car driving team with driver as the forefront right so say you gamble on a team but you have fixed the race a little bit then uh you can use the illegitimate money to turn it into clean money And this is what the mob is thinking. Like Uh, Shelby Company Limited. Yeah, like Shelby Company Limited. This is what Shannon is hoping for to pay against his debts. Yeah, so Shannon wants to pair up with Bernie, part of the mob, to clean that money through the driver's racing team. And essentially this implicates the driver. He's recruited by Bernie to be the race team's main driver. And we know that this is not a good interaction based on the first time Driver and Bernie meet. When the driver is about to shake hands with Bernie, he says, quote, my hands are real dirty, unquote. And Bernie just looks at him with this kind of smug grin. And then he goes, grin. so are mine. And this is essentially the induction into explicit criminality with the mob. It's foreshadowing what's going to happen between the driver and Bernie. They're both going to get their hands dirty. Do you think that's inherent with uh, villains getting their hands dirty? Depends on how you define dirty. If you mean dirty with blood, depends on the kind of villain. I feel like villains in the scope of villainy for storytelling usually get their hands dirty in some way. Either laundering money, killing people manipulating people there is always some form of dirt involved with villainy even if it's from good intent mostly uh when someone's hands are dirty it's just when they're guilty i suppose so i mean my hands are dirty every time i wash dishes maybe i'm guilty from killing a chicken for the dinner of the dish i'm cleaning I guess it's it's very hard to tell sometimes because uh, there's that old Scottish play. Don't say it. I'm not going to say the name, but um, a Scottish play and where Lady is washing her hands from the blood. Out, out, damned spot. Yeah. And she can never get clean. Right, because of the uh, crimes that she has committed. So would you say when, with the initial interaction of the driver and Bernie, when he says, my hands are dirty, he already knows he's part of the criminal empire, even though he's not associated with the mob yet? I would say so. And we might learn a little bit later that Bernie recognizes himself as a villain. Mm -hmm. Whereas driver does not. Right. Our driver does not recognize himself as a villain, but 
he is an anti-villain, which becomes pretty complicated. I think one of the main things that we see after the interaction with the driver and Bernie, they have shaken hands. They've agreed to do some kind of interaction with driving and likely laundering money. We also get a scene where the driver is at a diner and a man comes up to him and basically asks him to do another crime for a gig. We see the driver thinks he's going to be getting kind of a clean slate. He wants to do well for his neighbor and his crush, essentially Irene, and he wants to start fresh away from the life of driving criminals at night, but driving for the mob. But he is interacted with at a diner by someone from a previous gig who comes up to him, and when the driver is interacted with, he reacts very aggressively. Shut your mouth, or I'll kick your teeth down your throat and shut it for you. Where we see the driver is essentially slipping into previous temptations and violence. I think one of the key things of the driver's character is he seems very calm and cool and collected, but as the story progresses, he exponentially delves into rage and violence, maybe as a form of toxic masculinity and his isolation. Maybe just as a form of his own repressed feelings and not knowing how to get out of his situation. We really haven't talked about Irene yet a lot, have we? No. Irene is an interesting point. So during all this chaos that the driver is having. She's uh, kind of his light at the end of the tunnel. She's something that he looks forward to interacting with. His apartment building. Yeah, I mentioned earlier, she is the neighbor with a son and the husband in jail, but she's kind of this figure that gives him optimism in a way. Like the first time that we see Driver actually having a genuine human emotional response is when he meets her, which, oh, typical love story, but it kind of builds on him being more of a real human. So he's going through all these experiences of, I'll kick your teeth in, uh, he's going through all these experiences of uh, the mob. He's going through all these experiences of many things. And then he sees someone in the apartment building and uh, he wants to kind of protect them in a little bit. Yeah. He of a has way. a genuine interaction, but also sees, at least to him, someone who needs protecting where he can almost offer services that are not criminal. Like, I feel like for the driver, him wanting to be the provider and the protector feels like something that is genuine and not harmful, even though it could be depending on how you extrapolate on that and how you act on that. The driver comes from good intentions of wanting to be a provider and a protector, but because of his background... It might have also been how uh, Shannon treated him. You're saying where Shannon was his provider and protector? Yeah. Yeah. As far as we know, Shannon basically picked up the driver off the street, gave him a job, taught him the ways, and that's why he was the mentor, essentially. Right, right. So if he's the mentor in that way, maybe he's trying to repay what Shannon gave to him. That's a fair point. Uh, After we see a little bit more interactions with Irene and her son Benicio and the driver, it seems like the driver kind of wants to be a father figure or a mentor for Benicio, but 
quickly learns that he cannot because the driver discovers that Irene has a husband in jail named Standard Gabriel who comes back into town and the driver has been not any like sexual force with Irene or nothing overbearing. He is somebody there to be a nice neighbor and a reliable force. But when Standard Gabriel gets back in town, he thinks something more implicit has been happening, that there has been something more going on. I would say uh, the driver has a little bit of, uh, I I guess you could say, prescience or intuition about this person that's just returned from jail. And this person is not a bad person. Uh, as far as we know from the movie, he was essentially at the wrong place at the wrong time and had to pay his dues. Right. So he comes home and he tries to protect his kid. And I think that's kind of a natural monkey brain, monkey brain, human response. If you've been away for an extended period of time and you see another person is around your child and your partner, you want to reassert your at least not authority but your position as somebody that belongs there and that kind of ties into like the toxic neighborship that standard and the driver may have at first when they see each other they see each other as threats but really they have the same drive they want to protect irene and benicio they have the same drive uh yeah (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) Standard Gabriel is coming at the point of being a father figure. And the driver kind of implicitly wants to be a father figure, but he also wants to be a genuine stand-up guy, making sure his neighbors are looked out for and that the neighbor's kid is in a safe space. When Standard comes back, he sees the driver as a threat because of that inherent, oh, have you been fucking my wife? But eventually, when they have a little bit more of interactions, you see they're coming from a similar standpoint they just want to make sure people are safe but that doesn't end well for either of them most of the time it's because both of them come from a criminal background Mm -hmm. driver doesn't want to acknowledge it but standard does he just got out of prison and driver has lucked out that he has not gotten to prison but With their interactions, the driver learns that Standard is not off scotch-free. He has served his time for being wrong place and wrong time, but Standard still owes money to a criminal organization who essentially bought his safety while in prison. And while he was there, they tried upping the worth. So essentially, he has an outstanding debt that keeps accruing interest that he cannot pay off. This leads Standard to getting beaten up because he just got out of prison. He can't pay off his debts. He doesn't have a job. He literally just got out. He's still trying to provide for his family in some way, but there's somebody still after him because doesn't matter your life circumstance, you still have a debt to pay. And I think a little bit of this also has to do with how... There's a bit of trafficking when it comes to men. It actually might be in a violent context. Okay, elaborate on that. I feel like that would kind of extrapolate to something emotional as well. Like if your family especially is put on the line. Right, and then uh, maybe you can't pay off like a debt or something. And then it's accruing interest. And someone wants you to do something that you don't want to do. 
they want you to create like a, a violent action for them. That, so like finding a pain point and prodding on that to execute their own violent will. Correct. So that they want you to go out and maybe do fraud, do it's like violence to other people because they know that you have a weak point that they can push on and they use violence to coerce them, which turns into an entirely like violent system. And this ends up with Standard being in a bad place, and Benicio sees Standard being beaten up. Yeah, the mob comes after Standard, and in this sequence we see him bloodied and basically unconscious in the hallway of the apartment with Benicio hiding and cowering in terror. The driver walks in and sees the situation, and you would think in solidarity of, like, his brother almost, his neighbor, going immediately to help out standard but the driver actually goes right to benicio seeing this child is traumatized i can help this man later but this child needs to get to safety first which is part of his like valiant white knight act i would say also just but like also a, a little bit in a way of like kind of showing hey i'm better than uh standard in yeah a, way. a little bit it's kind of like a weird flex but okay eventually he does go and help standard he like doesn't seal his wounds but he cleans him up and he promises him i'm not telling your wife about this this is between us but at this point the driver kind of finds a leveraging point he knows standard is just out of prison is owing debt to the mob and is in a desperate situation and we also know that driver has some ties with the mob yeah not not in the mob but has ties with them yes he knows how they operate and at the same time his overall motivation is to protect irene and benicio So he utilizes the situation with Standard and goes, I can help you figure out your issue with the mob and protect your family at the same time. And also, isn't this just what Shannon was trying to do to the driver himself? Essentially, yeah, but with less, I guess, bodies involved. Yeah, I guess with a lot less violence involved. Under the table violence. Right. How would we concoct a scheme to get Standard out of this? They want him to uh, get them the money any way possible. They know a good target. They know a good target, of course. It's a pawn shop nearby. And who better to deliver Standard to the pawn shop than the driver? To be fair, the driver does actually concoct this scheme himself. He knows that the mobsters want a pawn shop robbed by standard, and goes, I have the means to get you there. And do you think that the driver's actually wanting Benicio and Irene to be a like a wholesome family and actually get standard out of this? Do you think he is like utilizing full good intent? I think it's misguided on the driver's behest. I think he wants to look good in Irene's eyes mostly. He kind of, well, at least well, from what I... Well, then why would he keep uh, standard being beaten up away from Irene. Well, I was going to say, at least from what I see it, he wants a little bit of both. He knows he doesn't have a real shot with Irene, so he wants to get in good with her husband, not necessarily for anything to be further, but so that everybody's kind of on like a happy medium, even if it's very uh, naive and idealistic. I actually think he's just doing it for the idealistic thing. I think he's actually wanting to be like an unsung hero that actually wants them to be a cohesive together unit because he sees that benicio looks up to standard and Mm. wants benicio to have you know a good family life that perhaps we don't know the driver may have never had 
So the driver wants to be the unsung hero. Like, he doesn't want to actually be a part of it. He wants to set up their happy family life. Yeah? Right. That's what I'm thinking. I think that's fair. But let's see how the driver's plans go. Yeah. So based on this new plan to help Standard get on clear terms with the mob, he breaks into and carjacks a Mustang, of course, to work with Standard. Yeah. Chant on him all the tools. Got to get into a car. Got to get a clean car. Mm -hmm. And the driver takes Standard, as well as a lady named Blanche, to a pawn shop, where Blanche and Standard go in to rob the pawn shop. And everything's looking so good. The robbery looks like it's going off perfect. Blanche gets out with a duffel bag, heads into that Mustang with the driver, all good and clean, waiting on Standard. Standard comes out. He's looking fine with his sunglasses. But then shit goes sour. As it does. Oh, shit goes way sour. Standard ends up getting shot. First in the ear. First in the ear. He looks really confused. Not only does he feel... I I think Standard feels betrayed by not only the mob, but also the driver. I would assume Standard thought the driver set him up. Right. And there's just this, like, look of confusion. But the driver also has some compassion and tries to get out of the car thinking, oh, maybe... Maybe I can help Standard in this moment. he still has that valiant effort of, I want your family to be safe. And then as Blanche is screaming, like screaming in the back, like, what the hell are you doing? All of a sudden, the driver remembers his rules, his rules for driving. Five minutes in, five minutes out. Within this time, I'm here to save you. But outside of that, I am the driver. And the five minutes for Standard is up. Right. So the driver gets back in the car. And then we're treated to a lovely action scene. They leave Standard's corpse in the parking lot and are chased by a bunch of mobsters. Also to note, this is all over 40 grand that was the attempted pawn shop heist. Is 40 grand really worth a human life? Depends on how you look at lives. (laughs) That is fair enough. To quote, actually, Shannon from this movie... A lot of people mess around with a married woman, but you're the one who robs a joint just to pay back the husband. Even though it failed, that's what the driver is trying to do. And I don't think that many people could forgive that. Even even if he had the right intentions, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. (laughs) And the driver is certainly driving down a road to hell. So the crazy like car chase scene in which the mob is chasing them. They don't want any witnesses. Uh, Standard just got killed. Driver uh, is fast in his Mustang, much he, as he has stunts. Yeah, it's essentially much as he has practiced in his daytime job of a Hollywood stunt driver by day, and also his usual job of Uber for crime by night. Uber for crime. Get it today. <laughs> So eventually they, uh, the driver ends up losing the mob and they get to a motel Mm -hmm. where they're trying to hide out. Yeah. He and Blanche, the last two survivors of this heist are holed up in this hotel talking to each other about what the fuck just happened and how to grapple with it. And they don't know. Maybe they got set up. And then I think the driver starts getting a bit paranoid about Blanche. Mm -hmm. He starts... Executing his rage on her, essentially. I think so. I think that's a lot of his rage. Is He just saw how he could be an unsung hero, and now... He, he saw that go down the toilet. 
immediately. Yeah, by standard getting killed, Olive Driver's plans have gone awry, and he knows he is in deep shit because he is now complicit in a crime as well as somebody's death, somebody who is very close to a woman he loves. A woman he loves whose life will never ever be the same, and a, a child whose father is ripped out of this world. Right, and he now knows, and so he's angry and rageful. Do you think he's angry and rageful just because he can't fulfill that hero, or because he knows now he is actually kind of a villain to them? I think it's because he believes he's a scorpion. Ah, which we'll elaborate a little bit more on later. Right, but anyway, he's paranoid with Blanche. This lady he does not know from Adam, who is part of this heist that went completely wrong. And then so she starts uh, fessing up, or maybe making up lies, we don't know. She's talking to him, and he doesn't know what to trust. She tells him that she was actually there to rip off both him and Standard and give the money to some asshole named Cook. And... Who? Some guy named Cook. I'm fucking Cook! (laughs) Yeah! Some asshole named Cook. He's pissed. He slaps her in the face. He doesn't know what to believe. So Blanche goes to the bathroom, and the driver is trying to reconcile with his thoughts and his paranoia and all of this grief and all of these emotions he has just experienced. And I think he goes, and he, like, starts reaching for the gun because I think he thinks Blanche is planning something. And essentially, as soon as he does, the mobsters reconvene at this motel, and they shoot Blanche in the head. Immediately. And then an entire shootout occurs in this motel. At this point, the driver is just trying to protect himself. He knows most people that were complicit in this action have been killed. He is doing fight or flight. So he fights and he kills all of these mobsters. But in this act, he ends up getting Blanche killed. And he kind of starts approaching his rebirth and transformation in the villain's arc. So after getting, like the hell out of there, like a bat out of hell, uh, driving. He just has like kind of like this anger building up. He doesn't know how to express it. Everything has just been kind of ripped away from him. And he knows that metaphorically. It hasn't actually yet, but if this was a chess game, he knows he's basically already lost. I would say also not in a chess game. He knows his paranoia has been validated. He did not get fucked by standard, But he got fucked by someone, and everything is kind of a domino effect. His paranoia is validated that nothing is according to plan as he saw fit. And he might have felt just like standard. He couldn't escape. He's getting beaten up. Maybe not physically this time, Mm -hmm. but emotionally. He could have gotten killed there in that motel. Mm -hmm. He he, He was set up. Now, maybe he's kind of forced into a system in which he might have to commit more violence than he's already committed today, which is why he's looking for this cook character. He's he's starting to go on this plot. Maybe I can be the one to use the violence to oppress other people or maybe just get some solace out of uh, my loss. And so he goes on a kind of like a revenge plot. I feel like it's a mixed bag of both of those things. I feel like the driver has that initial blinding rage of the revenge plot without knowing that these violent delights have violent ends. I feel like when your brain goes into full fight or flight, a lot of times somebody could think, I have to kill this person, beat up this person, do whatever to ensure the end goal of whoever I want or myself is protected, perhaps. So 
One could argue the driver is engaging in his rage and going full throttle, or one could argue he is going full survivor mode, perhaps. I guess you could also, you just brought up uh, the protection point. Maybe he just now wants Benicio and Irene out of this, completely removed. Standard has already been out of the picture. He knows that he will probably also not be in that picture. He just wants them to be out of it. Right. So maybe it's revenge. Maybe it's the protection. Maybe it's a mixture of all those things. And maybe that's what builds to a villain's rebirth or transformation, a hybridization of revenge or protection or whatever their corrupted motives are. The driver goes revenge spree on Cook who set up this heist and and breaks his fingers with a hammer and threatens to nail a bullet into his head. Yeah, and this is in, uh, I believe it's... It's a strip club. Yeah, it's a strip club. He hunts Cook down at a strip club and threatens these things. Because, you know, the ties. He he knows where to find him. Uh, he pressures one guy or another, finds out, where's this Cook guy, where's this Cook guy? And during this entire time, the camera angle changes. Usually we've seen the camera angle on the driver uh, looking down on the driver. Or looking uh, at face value on yeah, the driver. Yeah, equal perspectives, essentially. Yes. And in the moment where uh, the driver is... About to kill Cook. About to kill Cook. Hammering his fingers, putting a bullet into his mouth, asking a lot of questions. You see the driver above Cook in a very domineering position. Mm-hmm. In a very, I will kill you position usually in film and comics whoever is taking up most of the frame or is at the higher point of the frame has that assertion of power so this is the first time within drive visually speaking that we see the driver is at a position of power even if it's misguided because he is going revenge spree but this is the first time he feels like he's able to assert something and even though we think oh he can go full revenge spree and murder this guy in a strip club he just makes cook eat the bullet instead Right. Which is almost merciful. It's merciful, but also kind of cruel. Yeah. Because Cook is always going to be afraid. Driver is always going to be afraid. However, during that interaction, we find out that Cook was basically just a goon, and uh, he stole some money, and that money belonged to Nino. Mm, The guy who was pals with the mob investor, Bernie, who bid on the driver as being their race car driver at the beginning of the movie. All of this weird underworld crime syndicate, like, festering together in, like, this bizarre world. Synergistic management solutions for crime. Lovely. Hmm, yes. So after the driver does not end up killing somebody, he has his rebirth and his transformation and actually goes and does something that I think is fairly valorant for the driver. I think he's mostly a little bit of a simpy guy, but when he actually goes and talks to Irene about what happened, I think that is something that is what makes him a decent human being for that point in the movie. He approaches Irene and tells her what happened to her husband, recently released from jail, why he did the robbery, and how the driver was complicit in the heist that they were trying to pay off the debt and it did not work. And obviously, Irene is pissed about this. Oh, yeah. But I also still think it was the most honorable thing to do in that moment. Personally, I had a grandfather that was murdered, and the family still to this day 
like questions. How did it happen? When did it happen? There's no closure there. So the fact the driver is giving Irene and therefore Benicio closure, it doesn't justify. Yeah, it doesn't make anything better, but the closure there at least is something. Like that's the most you can do if you have knowledge. Right. Or at least that's the least you can do if you have knowledge of yeah, someone's murder. I would murder. say that's the least you yeah, can do. Yeah. Now, we've seen all of these happenings from the driver's perspective, but I think it's about time to do a paradigm shift. How are Irene and Benicio affected by all of these happenings? I think they have a valid point of view that the film doesn't really cover because it's so focused on the driver himself. Right. Benicio is just a, like a little kid. Yeah. How how does he feel when he sees his dad beat up and the driver take him in and like, let's go watch films? I think the first reaction, at least for me as a child, would be afraid for my dad, but not knowing what to do. And if somebody stepped in, I would probably just trust them because I didn't know what else to do. And I mean, Irene, she's a single mother. Her husband's been in prison this entire time. She's trying to take care of her kid. She also doesn't know what to do. I think there's even a party at one point uh, when Stander gets out of prison. And Irene just feels kind of dejected. Yeah, she's also grappling with her own loneliness, being part of a relationship that has kind of been on hiatus. Right. She was using most of her willpower to take care of Benicio. Does Stander even really know Benicio at this point? We don't know how long Stander had been in prison by the way, but that's kind of an aside. At the same time, both Irene and Benicio are also kind of grappling with their safety as not having a father figure or a provider, for lack of a better word, but trying to provide for themselves. But it's so easy to fall into a trap of, I need somebody to provide for me, where that's kind of where the driver falls in, in a way. And I think that really falls into line during this scene uh, that happens during the movie in which the driver kind of takes them out on it's not really a day it's just kind of like a like a day out in which he's driving through and like an la like sewer drainage like a flood area. Drain. Yeah. yeah like a flood drainage area and then uh he's just be like hey let's let's just go out for a drive it's sunny outside, some fun music's playing, maybe just inside of his head, but he's doing, like, tiny stunts, but not not huge, like, movie action stunts. Just kind of like, ooh, that was scary, that bump, right? And he's essentially giving them a roller coaster experience for free, while also kind of exhibiting his own authority in the, I am a stunt driver, both by day and by night, and I'll keep you safe while doing some things that feel a little bit abnormal right and from irene and benicio's perspective that's awesome like that's it's a such good a, time it's a great day why go to six flags when you can get in a car with your child <laughs> i think having a good neighbor like that is would be pretty cool oh definitely like a guy who's a stunt driver for hollywood if i was a kid i'd be like oh Hell my yeah. gosh teach me all the tricks so for them, it seems cool, but up until the point where they actually start to see who he really is, getting standard killed, bringing danger to their doorstep, I feel like at least for Benicio, he has to grapple with seeing some fucked up shit, and Irene has already seen some fucked up shit, and she's just carrying that more so. 
Well, I think there's some more fucked up shit to come. Oh boy, are we getting into the scene? Yes, we are getting into the elevator scene. All right. So the driver and Irene are at this moment where uh, the driver has just told Irene what happened to Standard. It's essentially a turning point in their relationship as neighbors or more so. So as the driver and Irene are talking, they head towards an elevator which opens to reveal another man is inside. And this guy doesn't really look like the type of guy that would be just hanging out in an elevator. Oh, I mean, I guess he is just hanging out in an elevator. He seems but mildly unobtrusive at first until the doors close and the lights change. The lights change a little bit and you can see in his waist pocket, there's basically a gun. And the driver notices this. Yeah, he glances down. He sees the gun. This is not looking good. Standard was just killed. The driver just killed a bunch of mobsters. And the driver knows that Irene and Benicio also have a target on their heads, as well as himself. However, in this moment, the driver recognizes... Well, I think the driver really already knew. This relationship is definitely over. He's already told Irene about Standard. Mm -hmm. Everything is going to be terrible. And in this moment, he just wants to protect Irene. He also kind of wants to have his last effort as the knight in shining armor. So as the lights dim and the sound fades out, the driver pushes Irene to the side and kisses her in their first and last passionate moment. Now, there's a fan theory out there that this could be all just in the driver's head. Mm -hmm. And it's noted by how the lights change when they kiss. Because there are only a few instances in the movie where the lights actually change, where something theoretical may be happening. So this might just be happening inside the driver's head. But no matter, either in his head or in real life, I suppose, as much as real life that film can get, (laughs) the kiss ends. And after that moment, the driver turns around and sucker punches the guy straight in the face. Knocking him to the ground. And And curb stomping him repeatedly. Over and over and over again in front of Irene. I mean, that's pretty classy after your first kiss, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a great start to a relationship. Just curb stomping a guy in an elevator. I think this turning point is really where the driver hones into his paranoia and his rage. He knows that everything is lost between him and Irene or whatever could have been. And he is going into the full, he is fully channeling into his fight mode. It's not justified. He knows that he needs to protect people, but he goes full throttle, which I think would be the turning point in his villain's arc to be of the villain's orgasm. Right. Now, one question I had is, do you think he still thinks of himself as a hero here, even though he is actually killing someone in front of the person that he loves most in this world? To be fair, he has killed people before at this point with the uh, motel scene in Blanche. I think he is seeing Red, kind of like in Red Dead Redemption, where you where you like freeze frame, hone in on whoever you're killing. He has a dead eye. Yeah, dead eye. I think he has kissed Irene, his dead eye is activated, and he goes... If I don't kill this bastard, we are both going to die. And he does it by the easiest means necessary, which is curb stomping the bitch. Right. Which I guess you could say is a villain's orgasm because he feels like he is in his right moment doing the best thing. But he that best havoc. thing is the worst thing. Right. 
usually the villain's orgasm would also be before the hero has their comeuppance, but since the driver is our hero and our villain, it's the most appropriate time. We're mostly is, just our anti-villain. But. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that later. It's basically the turning point where people see his horrific actions. He does them outwardly and explicitly. He has no remorse. By the time the elevator doors open, Irene steps out aghast, and the driver stands there looking at her, acknowledging what he has done, and not really doing anything else about it. I think she also has, like, solemn tears. She really trusted the driver. And then the driver just looks longingly at her and goes, I know. I know. She didn't expect this of him, but he, at least in the driver's mind, I feel like he had no other option. Yeah, in the driver's mind, this was the only choice. Well, anyway, after that really hard scene... We get to basically the uh, descending action, I would say, of the film. It turns out that the money that was stolen from the heist was actually stolen from good old Nino, who was part of the East Coast mob. So Bernie and Nino are also in deep shit, too, because that is not their money. They owe it to a higher power. We see... From their perspective for a little bit that they are plotting how to kill the driver but along the way they end up killing the mentor shannon instead kind of to further isolate the driver right man shannon did not deserve this and also they're looking for the money yeah they're looking for the money we don't know if they're made men or whatnot or if uh maybe their boss above them or we don't know what's going on but they need that money We know Bernie is looking for it and will do anything necessary to get it. And there's also a conspiracy that uh, Shannon is hiding that money, which actually, for a time, Shannon is hiding that money. Yeah. Uh, Shannon's hiding it in a car before Driver gets to him first. And when the driver gets to him, the driver's like, hey, Shannon, I don't want you to be a part of this. It's all on me. I know I hid the money in one of the cars here after, you know, the whole motel sequence. Please just give the money to me so that nothing will happen to you. However, the mob knows better. They go to Shannon. They go, you must have hidden the money. However, at this point, we know Shannon doesn't have the money anymore. It's just the driver. Driver has picked it up. Shannon still gets caught in the crossfires. Right. He shakes hands with Bernie, who pulls out a straight razor and cuts his wrist open, leaving him to bleed out in the garage where the driver was brought up, essentially leaving him as like a token to prove that, okay, driver, you have nowhere left to turn. Your mentor is dead. Your money is, we're still looking for it. There's nothing else you can do but turn yourself into us. Right. And it makes me wonder, is he the driver trying to prevent Benicio? from having the same experience that the driver is having with Shannon. Because Shannon's obviously going to get, like, Shannon gets killed in this whole situation. Even though Shannon didn't really do anything wrong besides having ties with these shady people. Maybe the driver is trying to protect Benicio from this. This is theoretical. But the fact that Irene is one of the only two female characters in this movie might be an inkling that there is a different path for Benicio. Because he not only has, like, male figures, stereotypically, but also, like, a mother who actually is looking out for him. So, maybe the driver is worried that Benicio is going to go down some kind of weird path. But I think 
the driver also trusts Irene will do Benicio well. And maybe that's why he's fighting for them so hard. And so I think also a part of the rage the driver feels is that after Shannon's death, we don't know if the driver knows about Shannon's death or if it's just about Benicio and Irene, but more of the revenge starts plotting inside of him. The driver actually does see that Shannon is dead in the garage. And so all he has is just hatred now in his heart. So he decides to do what he knows how to do. He goes to his stunt room where he puts on costumes to pretend to be like other actors. He puts on like a Vin Diesel mask. Like Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious. He's ready to go do a stunt driver movie car thing. And he's ready to take someone out along the way. Right. His first target is Nino, the pizza owner who is part of the mob. So after a party that Nino is hosting, the driver in his Vin Diesel mask starts stalking Nino and eventually T-bones his car and flips it off a cliff. While the driver's car is entirely fine. Yeah, you know, that's how stunt drivers go. They're driving. Hollywood, yeah. Their cars are fine. Yeah, all good. (laughs) Nino, battered and bloodied, is on the sands of a beach where the driver chases him into the ocean and drowns him. And then his next target, Bernie. The final boss showdown. Now... He can't necessarily get to Bernie. Bernie is a mastermind. I mean, I would say he's kind of a middleman, actually. But as far as the driver is concerned, as like a lower tier of the crime family. Yeah. Bernie is the mastermind. So. I mean, he he cut Shannon up. mm Mm-hmm. Without the driver knowing. And Bernie also calls the driver saying, I know that we are the only three players left in this game. You, myself, and your little girlfriend, too. Right. Which is so haunting. Because we also know that this guy was probably behind Standard's death. This guy uh, was behind Shannon's death. He was also behind trying to get the race car driving thing set up in the beginning. Right. And always looking down on the driver. So this guy, the final boss. From the beginning, Bernie has been trying to use the driver in one way, shape, or form. And now is the final point of leverage. Bernie wants the money from this heist. The money is still in play. He negotiates with the driver that if driver gives him the money, Irene and Benicio will be safe. But the driver is always going to have a target on his head. So what do you think the driver does? He goes and he meets. And this, I think, is where a bit of atonement comes from, a bit of death. It's a bit hard to say. One of the last points in the villain's arc. One of the last points. And so they meet... The driver has the money. Bernie walks up. They do a a few small words, a few, like, pretend like, oh, so good to see you. Stereotypical exchange. Yeah, it's it's great to see you again. And then uh, all of a sudden, Bernie takes out a knife. Stabs driver in the gut. Multiple times. But the driver is prepared, and he stabs right back in a more vulnerable place, one might argue. Bernie falls dead in the street. The driver himself is starting to bleed out. But he, he has a he's been kind of stabbed in the side, more of like his yeah. stomach area, whereas Bernie has been stabbed like right inside of the Yeah. So Bernie's not coming back. It looks like the driver probably won't come back either. He's they're kind both, of limping along. Yeah, they're both at this standstill. This is the boss battle where it doesn't look like anyone's winning. And there's just a bag of money on the floor. But in the last sequence, BC, the driver gets in his car. Now, do you think the driver might have died? 
depends on how you look at the movie. I mean, I always thought, how is he not dying of blood loss this whole time? The world may never know. world may never know. In the last sequence, he gets in his car, he leaves the money and Bernie's corpse, and drives into the sunset and moonlight, basically now, reflecting Do you think he left everything. the money, like, alone? Because it's like, this was never a part of the money. Like, it was never about that. I think it could have been a combination of that, and also he goes, this is dirty money. There's yeah. so many lives lost over this that it would be unjust to give this to Irene, even though I'm sure she could have used it. But he feels more solace in the mob being off of her head and her son's head. As he drives off, there's a song playing in which he is the real human being. And the real hero. Very arguable. Yeah. Very I mean, that's why he's our villain for today. But that's how the film ends. He thinks he's a hero. He's bleeding out. A bunch of people have died. And he just hopes that Irene and Benicio will be safe. There's no actual guarantee. Although Bernie is dead, it's likely there's somebody higher than him that the driver did not account for. So we end the film on high hopes. But we don't know if the driver survives or if even Irene and Benicio do. Well, on that happy note, here is a word from our sponsors. This episode was sponsored by Nino's Pizzeria. Serving the best pizza, pasta, subs, and salads in SoCal. Wait, doesn't the gluten in Nino's Pizzeria turn into snakes? No, 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 honey, that's the wrong podcast. The only snakes at Nino's are the ones running the counter. And you know it, we're rolling in more than just the dough. And our meat is always fresh fresh cut. Nino's Pizzeria. Guaranteed delivery. Five minutes in or out. Always delicious. Oh, man. I love Nino's Pizza. It's so good. But we're not here to talk about pizza. No matter how much I love it. You wish we could talk about pizza. Oh, yeah. Here, we're going to talk a bit about symbology during the driver. Fair enough. Now, at face value, it seems like a fairly basic movie. It's a neo-noir crime thriller with a lot of nice neon visual aesthetics and some pretty good music. But there are a few very significant elements of symbolism within Drive. First off, we're going to be talking about sharks. Sharks? Yeah. So Lone sharks? Uh, a, l- a little bit. A little bit. Or are you we'll just, we'll like... get into that. Oh, okay, okay. So the first time we actually see Driver hanging out with Benicio... Benicio is watching a cartoon where he assumes one of the characters is a villain solely because of the fact that this character's species is shark. The driver asks Benicio, are there no friendly sharks? Where the kid implies that no, just because of how they look, how they act, they're all bad. Which I think kind of hurts driver. Oh, definitely. He he doesn't say anything, but he looks at Benicio and then he looks at the cartoon And I think he sees himself as a shark. Or maybe he's imagining the mobsters being kind of lone sharks. He's definitely imagining some kind of scenario that he is a part of. I think if the driver is seeing the people he is surrounded by as sharks, he goes, I hope some of them are good, maybe like Shannon. But if he looks at himself as a shark, he goes, I hope I'm one of the good ones. Right. And that he won't be seen as a bad shark, so to speak. But according to Benicio, all, all of sharks them are. Yeah. And so I think that 
that is what really hurts him is that he doesn't feel like he can kind of change his inherent nature. Yeah. I think based on how the film's story has transpired, it could be argued that the driver himself is a shark. He smells blood in the water, which are criminals that need a quick getaway during a crime. And he profits off of that, essentially. He also profits off of Hollywood things. Mm Mm-hmm. People that smell blood in the water are people that want to watch violent acts on TV, but need someone willing to do it. Right, and he's willing to do it. You could also, at least in terms of what I had read of the director's vision of the first sequence where the driver is doing his Uber for criminals, it was almost intended to be viewed that he is also a diver amongst sharks. The driver is just transporting people where they need to go, but he is in such this criminal underworld that he is surrounded by people. Right. At least in terms of the visuals, where he's just kind of like a factor to it. And I think what might be more applicable in getting into some of the symbology of where maybe he's surrounded by sharks, maybe it's part of his, like, maybe it's him. I think it could be a bit of both, but I think what might be more interesting to explore is... uh kind of this myth that's brought up during the film. Ah, okay, you're talking about the scorpion and the frog, aren't you? Right, which during this entire time, the driver has a jacket that he wears when he's usually doing business. Almost like a superhero costume, one could say. Almost like a superhero costume. On that jacket, there's a giant scorpion on its back. Golden embroidery. The myth we're covering is the scorpion and the frog, which... If you don't know, we can read it to you. A scorpion asks a frog to carry him over a river. The frog says, no, because you will sting me. But the scorpion argues that if it did so, both would sink, and then he would drown too. The frog then agrees, but midway across the river, the scorpion does indeed sting the frog. While drowning, the frog asks, why? The scorpion answered, Because it's in my nature. Now, this definitely ties into the movie of Drive. There's a lot of different parallels we can derive from it. However, the story of the scorpion and the frog is initially based on a Persian tale of a turtle and a scorpion, where in the end, the turtle survives. The turtle delivers the scorpion, but tells him he could have drowned him, but there's also a different ending where the turtle tucks into a shell after being stung and drowns the scorpion. I think the scorpion and the frog metaphor puts it into a little bit more of this gray area. Right. It's also really interesting because I heard a very similar kind of tale or uh, I guess you could say folklore when I was a kid. A fable. A fable. Uh, However, it was turned into uh, the gingerbread man and the fox. Oh, I remember that one. Right, right. And it's like a gingerbread man committing all these crimes across a, a village. And he's like, you can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. And then he like makes a deal with the fox, like, take me across the river. While he's being hunted down. Right. And the fox is like, okay, but only if you can secure some more loot for me after we get across the river. Uh, so during like that entire scene, uh, the fox is carrying the gingerbread man across the river and then throws him up into the air and eats the gingerbread man. And then kind of like 
snickers to himself being like what did you expect gingerbread man big oof so that one is a completely different ending than both the scorpion and the frog the scorpion and the turtle in this scenario the fox is basically like the big bad but also the smarter one in the bunch i think it kind of also like ties into like the fable of the turtle closing up its shell after it's been oh fair enough yeah he the fox is the one carrying the gingerbread man on his back and teaches him a lesson right so i think it's just like one of those fables that kind of like gets told like differently like across many different cultures right and might have like started in persia but then like got spread to like russia might have gotten spread to like europe all the way to the united states where i heard it as like a tiny child and where it eventually evolves into the movie drive in a way right and so with the driver having the scorpion as a jacket superhero suit it's almost as he sees himself as the scorpion i mean in the one of the last few interactions he has with the mob boss bernie after killing nino on the beach the driver calls him up and says you know the story about the scorpion and the frog it's literally said in the movie your friend nino didn't make it across the river which at this point the driver sees himself as the frog carrying the scorpion however i think there's kind of a duality with the driver for most of the movie he is seen as the frog he drives or carries criminals scorpions from one place to another yep inevitably being dragged into their own destructive world and getting stung leading to everyone's downfall based on his acts he kind of like metamorphosizes or like becomes the scorpion i think this is a deep cut but i think it's relevant for his villain's archetype that we'll get into very soon but i think what if he was a scorpion trying to swim across like the river with i don't know another scorpion scorpions on top of scorpions (laughs) scorpions all the way down (laughs) i think depending on how you view it you can either see If we're taking this metaphor, the driver as a scorpion all along, or that transformation, that metamorphosis, where he becomes a scorpion in the end. Right. I also think in the opening scene, where he is the driver, but he delivers criminals from one place to another. However, in that opening sequence, a bunch of terrible things go wrong, and the driver protects himself. He gets out, he makes sure he gets away clean. Five minutes in, five minutes out. And then later in the film, in a very small scene, we find out that the criminals that he delivered eventually got caught. So I guess one could argue then, if we're taking it a little bit outside of this metaphor, then maybe he was the turtle all along. By having his five minutes in, five minutes out rule, maybe he always had that shell so that if he ever got stung, he would be safe in the long run. Right. But I guess maybe his shell kind of broke down over time maybe in which he became a frog (laughs) (laughs) oh now he just became into a reptile (laughs) or an arachnid arachnophobia either way i think the driver started off as someone seeming a little bit more prey worthy and kind of became a predator in the end i think that he was always a predator, kind of like the fox with the gingerbread man. Fair enough. I think he was carrying someone from one place to another and then always ready to eat 
and he knew that hunger and he knew how angry and how that hunger kept growing inside of him. Ah, with his rage and his paranoia. Right. No, that's a valid point. And I, I think you've swayed me. Yeah, yeah. And he eventually ends up eating the gingerbread man, killing Bernie, killing Nino, crushing that man's head in the elevator and ruining his entire relationship with Irene. Maybe even dying himself. Right. So I think that really wraps up the overt symbology within this movie. There are a few other things you can read into. I mean, if you're wanting to look into it, there are two hidden scorpions in the film. So go rewatch it if you want. But we are a podcast about villains, not about symbolism. So we're going to tie both in together and go through the driver's villain's arc. So his threshold falls for the neighbor Irene. This could be like, you know, how he starts getting into this sort of mess. He's already part of the mess, but he's kind of distanced himself at this point. Yeah. But this is the real turning point when it hits the threshold of getting into not just becoming like a normal standard, like anti-hero into becoming an anti-villain. Right. I think one could also argue that Irene is almost a little bit of a temptation for him, but we'll get into that a little bit more later. But his mentor is Sith Lord, basically. <laughs> or his daddy. Is the mechanic Shannon, which I love Shannon. Shannon's such a good character. It's played by our beloved actor, Walter White. Or Walter Hal White. from Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That guy. I, I can't think of his name right now. Amazing actor. But it's a guy who gives him a job. Gives him a job in his mechanic shop. Trains him up. Finds out he's a good driver. Although Shannon has a bit of money problems with the mechanic shop. Ends up getting involved in the mob. Which Shannon also ends up souping up the cars that the driver uses to do his crimes. Potentially as part of the mob ties. Right. So... Shannon kind of introduces him to this world and also helps him, guides him, and basically kind of trains him. Yeah. That leads into the driver's temptations or motivations. After the driver is imbued into this world of, like, mild criminality, or maybe overt criminality, he's encouraged by his mentor, Shannon, but also tempted by Bernie, who offers to recruit him as a race car driver for the mob. Maybe a race car driver is a way to get out of this weird mob situation, but also still be involved. Right. I think it's a little bit le- like lower stakes than being Uber for criminals by night, but still involved. Maybe a little bit less of the face. Right. I think at the same time, the driver is also motivated by Irene. This kind of false perception, this naive idea of motivation of family and protection that the driver rationally knows he can never fulfill even though it's maybe something that is a hole in his life that he's never had fulfilled by anyone besides shannon right like he wants to fulfill it but he knows because standard is still in the picture even before standard gets killed that that, like he can't compete i mean the driver's not a horrible guy he's not going to try and ruin that relationship once standard gets out but right. he he idealizes, I want these people to be safe and okay. So he's it's motivated. It's like he grew up them. on like those old cartoons. <laughs> like, you know, those old cartoons of, I'll save the day. I mean, he does want to be a real hero, a real human being, quote unquote. He wants to be the amazing Steiner. He wants to be Superman. Right. After that, 
part of the driver's villain's arc is his revelation and death, which is not his own death, but I would say when he encourages Standard after getting out of prison to do the heist and pay off his debt, eventually getting Standard killed. Which and, I think is the real death for him. That's the real revel- like revelation that yeah, nothing seeing, is going to work out. Yeah. After that, nothing, like, it's it's over. Seeing somebody die, not necessarily by your hand explicitly, but you contributing to the woman you love's husband's death. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, you can play a chess game all the way out to the end, but at that point, you know you should just resign. Like, yeah. It, at that point, it's already over. The game, yeah. the game is done. It's... It's finished. So the death that the driver sees prompts his revelation that no one is safe, which essentially brings to his rebirth and transformation, where he eventually takes the pursuit of revenge for Standard by trying to protect Irene and Benicio from the mob. Which eventually leads to the very heartbreaking scene of the elevator scene, which we're now coining as... The villain's orgasm. We need a better name for this. We, it's kind Ooh, of fun. Wee. Oh, we, we, but I mean, oh, it, guys, you mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we might want to recoin that. It's like the comeuppance of the villain. No, I don't even think it's the comeuppance. It's like it's like the villain's enjoyment of like pushing into like the villainhoodness of it. Uh, I don't know. I, Maybe I don't that is word. the villain's orgasm. Yeah, I, I, I would say... Feedback. If there's a better term that's not as creepy as villain's orgasm, let us know. <laughs> anyway, this is where he just wreaks havoc. He starts killing a bunch of people. Not only is he entirely removing himself from Irene in a very explicit way by curb stomping someone, uh, ruining his own relationship. So not, is he, like, not only is he hurting Irene, he's also hurting himself. I would also say he's hurting Benicio in a way. The fact that he is doing something horrifying in Irene's witness will make her want to cut off the driver from Benicio, who Benicio sees as kind of like, oh, this is maybe another father figure, or at least a cool guy. So it's going to indirectly hurt Benicio eventually. Right. And I think that's when he really embraces his villainhood. Mm-hmm. He goes, I am now the scorpion, or now I am the fox. I am now this guy who does bad things. Right. And I guess at the very end of his villain's arc, his atonement, or not even, no, not his atonement. His resolution is the driver meeting up with Bernie, getting stabbed himself, and stabbing Bernie in the end. And also killing Nino. Well, yeah, yeah. That That's kind of a, like falling action of his resolution i think the final blow is when he kills bernie and gets hurt himself in a way the driver sacrifices himself for everything that he wanted being a provider being part of this nice family life or at least being out of mob ties but i think that leads into maybe something that could be part of a like a new part of the villain's arc which is legacy yeah the legacy that a villain like i would say controversial as it is Hitler, awful person, absolute villain, but has left a legacy that most of the world has had to deal with. Right. Most villains do leave their mark, regardless of how people see it. There is something left. So I think that is a fair point to add to the villain's arc instead of just resolution, how they die, how they end, whatever. Walpole didn't have a fucking resolution, but I'm salty about that. 
Right. But, but he had a the, legacy on how uh, parliaments are now structured. Exactly. So for the driver, what do you think his legacy or his like lasting mark or influence would be? I would say his legacy is those people will never hurt people again, like standard. Like the the mob? Yeah, like the the mobsters will never hurt people ever again. I mean, at least as far as he thinks. If as there are higher thinks. points in the mob, they will still hurt people. Oh, but they, they as far as the will. driver knows, from his limited perspective, everyone is safe. And he's hoping his legacy will be Irene and Benicio lead, like leading a life that is not as involved in such seedy underworlds. I think the driver himself hopes his legacy will be one of safety, even if it's not of like long-term financial prosperity or providership. I think he wants them to remember that he was not a bad guy. But even though they will. Yeah, yeah. They will. And so I think he's really trying to go after a legacy, but almost it might be a legacy for himself. I think so. I think it's very selfish. He drives off into the night thinking about them, thinking about, oh, I've done everything for them, but he's really shaken their snow globe to the point that they will be traumatized forever from what he has done and what he has gotten them involved with. Thank you, Ice King. I guess let's get into his archetype then. Oh. Ah. Uh, hmm. I guess the driver at face value is a criminal. Definitely. But, I mean, all criminals are terrible. I know. But for the driver, as a criminal, he is in it for money and power. I mean, he does his crime drives to get money and to kind of skirt around the weird gray areas of legality. Because he is just driving, he is still complicit, but he is safer than actually doing the crime act. So he's in a good position himself. Right. And as I kind of foreshadowed, I guess, earlier, he's an anti-villain, really, mm -hmm. which is really, really hard to find. We're used to heroes, we're used to anti-heroes, we're used to playing villains, but having an anti-villain is very strange. I would say, like, uh, what did TV tropes say it was? Do you have, like, that pulled I, up? I got a few quotes. Okay, okay. If you'll indulge me. An anti-villain, according to TV tropes, is a, quote, character with heroic goals, personality traits, and or virtues who is ultimately the villain. Their goals may be selfish or have long-term consequences they don't care about, but they are good people. Anti-villains are kind-hearted and can be caring and honorable in nature." Unquote. I think that perfectly describes our driver here. Yeah, I mean, his goals... Or selfish, technically. Yeah. His personality traits kind of, a, like, he he's such a gray character that we don't know if he is really good or bad, but his goals are ultimately, I want to protect, and he doesn't really care about the end goal of his actions, other than, I want to protect Irene and Benicio. Right. He sees himself as a good person, and he does some good acts, like trying to protect Standard, mm -hmm. trying to take care of Benicio, trying to take care of Irene... But in the end, all of these goals kind of become corrupted with his, within his own psyche. They're corrupted because they're in his own game. He thinks he's being valiant in a protective role, but it's really just to fulfill his own like internal prophecy. Right, and his own internal needs. Yeah. Which 
he ends up getting Shannon killed too, like trying to protect Shannon. Like this is a person that's trying to help and then all they do is villainy. Worse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we really explicitly see that with the driver's ending intentions with Bernie as evil. Although Bernie is set up as the villain throughout the story, the driver really affirms his role as a villain because we see him as appealing and sympathetic to the audience from his desire to protect, but by the after he has reached his villain's orgasm, his desire to protect is no longer in the forefront. Nope. He has become the fox. Now, because we see so much of this movie, I mean, almost all of it through the driver's perspective, we are essentially unwittingly made to see him as a hero until we do some further reflection and digging, which is what our podcast is all about. So I think let's do a little bit more digging. What is the driver's alignment and what are his tactics? I think he's a bit chaotic. I mean, for sure. One moment he's a good guy, one moment he's a bad guy. He always sees himself as a good guy, but he also has his own predefined rules, while not abiding by actual civilian rules. Right, which I mean, you could say that's lawful, but it's his own rules, and he actually doesn't even follow his own rules most of the time. Right, I mean, when we see him do his first high-speed chase... He's not abiding by traffic laws, for sure. When we see him do his other high-speed chase, he's definitely not, and also goes into murder. And his own rules are very fluctuating based on his primary desires, so I I agree that he's a chaotic kind of character. He's kind of like a... If you are putting people into groups of, you wear the white hat, you're the good character. You wear the black hat, you're the bad character. He's like a gray hat wearer. Definitely. Now, do you think he's pure evil no i i think he has like a misguided view of the world and his motivations almost okay so he's definitely not good so that would probably place him into neutral yeah i guess i feel like his motivations and desires mostly shape how he acts but sometimes he does want to do good things like for standard and sometimes he wants to do bad things like driving criminals around but that's really for his own gain perhaps he could be actually lawful neutral if he follows his own rules i mean he flubbed them up like a few times a lot of times right but i mean he's still always in and he's out five minutes in five minutes out his own rules that are consistent yeah he does do that with standard we don't know how long the encounter that he has with bernie is so if you are assuming that he is lawful neutral if his last encounter with a mob boss was five minutes, then I would say he is lawful neutral. True. If it goes outside of his own bounds, then I would say he's chaotic. That's very fair. That's very fair. He he wears a few hats, so <laughs> I guess I would say maybe lawful kind of going into chaotic. He's a lawful chaotic cusp. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I find it pretty interesting because for this movie, a lot of the inspiration actually came from Grimm's fairy tales. The goal of the director, Nicholas Winding Refn, was to make a fairy tale with an L.A. background with the driver as a hero, where he protects what is good 
while at the same time killing degenerate people in violent ways. And I feel like that motive is kind of like this weird gray area neutrality of I'm doing what's good, but I'm killing a bunch of bad guys. Like, Right, which I think the only way you can justify that kind of thinking is in war. Okay. But only during certain circumstances. If you're just in a city setting, like degenerate only means what degenerate means to you. Yeah, what if the driver thinks he's at war? Well... I suppose if he thinks he's at war, I, I, I suppose so. Uh, maybe just killing people is awful. <laughs> I, maybe that's a cop out. Maybe, maybe I'm uh, just being a, like a little bitch, but don't think it's a good thing. Uh, I think a lot of the times the driver can be considered as good based on his desire to protect people and to do the right thing, quote unquote. But he can also be seen as evil, considering he is hired by criminals while not affirming or denying their crimes until he actually tries to go full throttle with Irene and doing the heist for her husband. He really tries to play both sides of these things. That's why I think Grey Hat, like that neutrality, he's like, oh, I'm here. Oh, I'm here. Oh, I'm here. Ooh, ooh. Slip in, slip out, slip in, slip out. And you this got mysterious the best man. Of both worlds. <laughs> he wears so many hats, he's so mysterious that he cannot be confined into a certain label. Like me. Ooh. So, based on this chaotic neutrality and this kind of flippy floppy nature of the driver, we figured he would be a very intriguing villain for today. He is not initially portrayed as a villain, but when you read into him, his actions prove otherwise. And I think maybe it's one of the reasons I thought it'd be pretty good to cover him, because he's a protagonist, and he's not explicitly said as the villain, which our podcast is all about exploring villains. And I think a lot of the times... There's people that can be portrayed as a hero, but are actually villains to other people. And so I thought it'd be an interesting topic to cover instead of something like... Uh, Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Or... For the driver. We... Or Nightcrawler with Jake True. Gyllenhaal. True. Who is obviously a villain. And something like that where you can be like, oh, this is a protagonist, but is the villain. With the driver, I feel like he has so much of this gray area that we can paint him as a villain or paint him as a hero as we deem fit. Now, it's really up to you as a listener. Do you think the driver is a true villain or is he just a misguided hero? Or is he a real hero? Is he a real human being? Well, since it's the start of a new year or a little bit later than that, I think... Well, it's the end of the year for you. (laughs) What? Regardless, I think we should do a tiny tier list of the villains we've covered so far in this baby podcast. So, for a recap, our first episode, If You Smoke Too Much Rafa, we have covered Munjo Seo from Hell is Other People. Our second episode was Robert Walpole from History, and today's episode was The Driver from Drive. So, Trin... If you had to rank these three heinous individuals on a tier list of the most villainous to least, how would you rank them? So, I'm putting them all on the same tier list. I'm going to say Robert Walpole, because he was real. Then, uh, Munjo Seo. Okay, fair. 
and then I'm going to put driver. However, if we're talking in pure fantasy fiction space, I'm going to put Monjo Seo above Robert Walpole. Okay, I think I would agree with that. Maybe that's a point of unfairness with our podcast is that we cover villains from media and history. I personally think Seo is the utmost S-tier villain. S-tier, definitely S-tier. But because he is not real, I feel conflicted. At least for me, Walpole created prime ministership and did a lot of horrible things as we covered in episode two, Wigging Out with Robert Walpole. So, like... In which I got no facts wrong. (laughs) Maybe if we are to do a tier list in the future, we need to separate from villains from media and villains from history. Because realistically, Walpole was the worst, but visually and storytelling, Seo was. And the driver, you know, we just established he's this gray area. Here's what, guy. He, he's going to be like, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I could. I don't. <laughs> you love him, you hate uh, him. Yeah. For me, I love Seo because he's a creep. Oh, Seo is a creep of the best kind. <laughs> He's a he's a true light Yagami. Oh boy, which may be another villain we may cover, Who or knows? Ryuk, or yeah, that. that well, that's uh, an aside. That's an aside. That's an aside. What made you the most <laughs> villainous this month? Well, considering it was holiday season, we were around family members, and I pulled the ultimate crime with my family. <laughs> We played dominoes with our family, and my dad was the point keeper. Now, as one does during Christmas holidays, he went to go re-up on his alcohol. Or maybe he was just trying to piss. I don't know. Uh, Anyway, when nobody was paying attention, I took the scorecard, and I upped his score from 11 to 71 you motherfucker that's I why bumped i lost it 60 points no 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 i was trying to give everyone an up because the lower the points you have in dominoes the better you're doing so by bumping him from 11 to 71 i was making him appear worse in the oh. rounds he was playing this shows how much i know i have uh, no idea about dominoes Dominoes is a game of luck oh anyway my dad didn't realize until Towards the very end of the night when everybody was drunk and was like, we're not playing dominoes anymore. We're watching Christmas movies. It's fine. I told everybody what happened. And I will probably never be invited back to play dominoes with my family because I'm a cheater. Well, I don't think you have nearly as villainous arc as me. Oh, yeah. What'd you do? I beat the shit out of someone. I didn't know about this. Yeah. What did you do? I broke their ribs. Are we going to be sued soon? No, because I broke my own ribs. Villainous arc, self, self-doing. self uh, This always happens with you. Yes, I, the villainous Trin, went to go rush to the bathroom, preparing to go meet a friend, and then slipped like a cartoon character on, on, a, a, on a banana, uh, <laughs> because there was too much water on the floor, and... Before I hit the back of my head, I decided to catch myself on the sink. And when I caught myself on the sink, uh, I hit my ribs and broke them and uh, then got sick. And it was a really good, fun time. For listeners' notes, Trin has broken his ribs twice before this instance. Uh, I'm really good at falling. (laughs) That's one way to put it. Well... If you'd like to be a part of the World Domination Committee, 
Follow us on whatever interface that you listen to podcasts on and leave us a review. Apparently, uh, it's hard to leave us a review. We had some listener feedback that it's hard to leave us a... I think we need three episodes to get a review, and this is the third. So if reviews have unlocked for you, do it, bitch. Thank you. And you can also infiltrate the Wired with us at... WorldDomination.ca Send us some villainous correspondence to committee at worlddomination.ca. Like we mentioned, we like hate mail. We like bot mail. We like feedback. So that's the place to put it. You can also read our snarky remarks on the hellscape that is Twitter at the WDC podcast. Not to be confused with WDC podcast. We are not affiliated with a Christian organization. Also, Nav. More snarky comments. More snarky comments. Come on, Nav. Give it to us. Give it to us, Daddy. Or Mommy. Or Demi. Parental unit. If you want to see what I'm up to in my personal life and my professional life, mostly just my professional life, you can see me at trend.tech. That is T-R-Y-N-N dot T-E-C-H. Kind of like trying. I think you're trying too hard, my pal. (laughs) If you want to get outside of the tech world and proliferate the gay agenda, you can read my comic, What We Do in the Closet, on Top Us or any other place that you read comics. Link is in the doobly-doo. Real human being. That's all, fuckers! This podcast was brought to you by Bad Baby Productions. Peace.